Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show, people who listen to the Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist, the head of the Roosevelt Institute, the former chief economist in the Clinton White House, former chief economist of the World Bank. He is about as decorated academically and in terms of public service as they come. He's someone a lot of you have asked for since we began doing the show, and so I was excited that he was up for doing it. We had a, a long, fascinating conversation. We talked about who should be on Clinton's shortlist for Treasury and for the National Economics Council. We talked about his PhD thesis on inequality and how it structures some of his work today. We talked about the work he won the Nobel Prize for on market asymmetries and why people sometimes overestimate how how well markets function. We talk a lot about the effort he's engaged in now, which he's called rewriting the rules, which is, I think, really a project meant to create the next liberal economic agenda. And the way in which it differs, I think, with what Democrats have been doing in recent years, it is very focused on getting into the guts of the economy and rewriting the rules that govern how markets function, not simply waiting to do interventions in the tax system, which has been much more the norm in the Clinton and post-Clinton era. We talk about Greece and Venezuela. We talk about a universal basic income and whether he thinks that's a good idea. He's got some criticisms of it. It is a wide-ranging conversation. It's a lot of fun. He was great and really, really dove pretty deep into some of these issues. As always, please share the show. Go on Facebook, go on the Twitters, tell people that you're enjoying it, send them to your favorite episode. Please listen to our other podcast, The Weeds. If you like this kind of deep economic policy talk, you will very much like that one. And continue emailing me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with suggestions for guests. So here, without further ado, Dr. Joseph Stiglitz. Dr. Stiglitz, thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure to be here. So I want to hear about the road to the work that made you famous within economics first. What got you into economics at the beginning? When did you decide to become an economist? Well, it was in my junior year in college. I'd always been interested in economic problems. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, which is a steel town on the southern shore of Lake Michigan. And like in many industrial towns, it had 
a lot of inequality, a lot of racial discrimination, and it suffered from economic fluctuations when the economy was weak. My classmates didn't have money, and uh, when the workers were on strike, uh, my classmates didn't have money. So I, I had a feeling about these issues from the time I was actually quite young. I've been a major in physics in my first three years at, at Amherst College, and somehow I, I decided sometime at the end of my junior year that the problems I was really interested in were social problems, economic problems, and that I could use my interest in mathematics, my interest in history, bring them together in the study of economics. What did your parents do? My father was an insurance agent. My mother was a teacher. She taught primary school. She had been a major in business and economics at the University of Chicago during the Great Depression, but her real love was was children. And so after I graduated from high school, she decided to go back to school, train to be a teacher, and that's what she did for the rest of her life. And so when you go into economics, one of the things that I find really interesting about your career is you, you, you choose to study in a way, what economics was at that point getting wrong or maybe not focusing enough on, which is broken markets. I'd love to get a sense of how that became your focus and what was the context within the profession around those issues when you began focusing on it? So there were actually two things that I focused on. One was inequality. My thesis, much of my thesis was on inequality, and that too was not a subject of much concern at the time. It's finally become a subject that's getting the attention it deserves. What was your thesis but, specifically? Oh, it was about trying to explain why we had such inequality, what was the mechanism of the transmission of inequality across generations, whether there was a process by which over time that inequality would be reduced or whether there were forces that might actually lead it to even greater inequality. And the framework that I created, that I wrote in my thesis, actually uh, is still, I think, the, the basic framework within which the subject is studied today. I went back to re-examine many of the same issues in a some research I did in 2014 and 15 and reviewed the literature that had gone on. And there had been a lot of very good empirical work. But in terms of theoretical frameworks, the framework that I created back in the 1960s seemed to have held up uh, extraordinarily well. What was that framework in, in layman's terms? Well, it was about how inequalities got transmitted across generations how there were centrifugal and centripetal forces in our society, forces pulling us apart and forces pulling us together, and that how you can describe the equilibrium level of inequality as a balance between the centrifugal and centripetal forces, and that when you change various laws like you make access to public education, which is an important force pulling our society together, if you may weaken public education, then you disturb that balance and you're going to wind up with more, more inequality. That, that's, but I wanted to come back sorry. to the other question that you, you raised, which is market failures. Mm -hmm. The A predominant view before I started my research was that markets were efficient. That was the idea that Adam Smith had talked about, that 
the pursuit of self-interest would lead, as if by an invisible hand, to the well-being of everybody in society. I knew that was not right because uh, I had seen people not doing very well. And if what I had saw as I was growing up was the best that one could get. We needed to uh, reinvent our, our economy. But actually, after Adam Smith wrote his book, actually it was about 175 years later, mathematical economics was finally able to establish the conditions under which Adam Smith's hypothesis was correct. And there were very restricted conditions, like there had to be very intense competition. There had to be no problems such as environmental pollution. There had to be perfect risk markets, perfect capital markets you could borrow easily. So there are a whole set of conditions that they had established as part of being sure that the market led to good outcomes. And when those conditions weren't satisfied, it was called a market failure. Now, as I began my own work, two questions uh, were raised. Were there other market failures, perhaps even more important? And were there ways of overcoming these market failures or what, what could be done about them? On the first question was where I really had my most important breakthrough, which which won the Nobel Prize, I said, look at the standard models had assumed perfect information. Everybody knew essentially everything. Economists were not so stupid as, as to really believe that. But what they believed was that so long as imperfections of information were not too great, then markets would work reasonably well. And I showed uh, several things. First, I showed that I, I developed a mathematical way of being precise about imperfections of information, asymmetries of information, which simply means that some individuals know something that somebody else doesn't know. I was able to use that framework to show that the standard model was not robust, that even a little bit of information imperfection and asymmetries could have drastic results on the outcome. Can you explain that, that for a minute? Because I think that part well, is that, important, and, and I'd love you to be concrete about it. Sure. So what it means is that even small information problems could have very big consequences. So just let me give you an example. Let's assume that there is a a small cost of going to a store to search for the lowest price. This is before the days of the internet where you could do it almost costlessly, but assuming the days where you actually had to go around to stores to search, and my work was done before <laughs> before the internet. So in that kind of a world, what could be shown is that even with small cost of going to the store, rather than getting the competitive price, you could wind up with the monopoly price. And their argument is actually very simple. You go to a store, assume that everybody had the same price, the same competitive price. Any store would know that if it raised its price just a little bit, you wouldn't go and search on because it just wouldn't pay. But then, since everybody knows that, they all raise their price and they keep raising their price until they hit the monopoly price. So that that's an example of how fragile 
the theory of competition that economists have relied upon was. That example I just gave was actually due some work by Peter Diamond at MIT, who also got a Nobel Prize for, for some of his work. So this has been a major strand in modern economics, trying to explore what are the consequences of going beyond the standard assumptions. And it's been devastating for Mark, those who believe in that markets work perfectly and that you could rely just on markets. And that brings me to the second theme I said. The question was, what do you do about it? Well, there are a whole set of things that collective action, which means government, can do to improve things, not necessarily make things perfect, but make things better, like antitrust policies to curb the power of monopolies, which have become actually even more powerful in in recent years. You need environmental policies to curb pollution, a set of laws to govern all kinds of markets. So that brings me to my more recent work on rewriting the rules. The theme here is that markets don't exist in a vacuum. They operate under certain rules and regulations, and those rules and regulations can make markets either work better or worse, work for everyone or for a few. So this book that I did with the Roosevelt Institute was an attempt to show that beginning in the 1980s, there was a a process of rewriting the rules of the American economy that led to more inequality and actually less efficiency. The economy actually didn't perform as well. And so the challenge ahead for us today is to rewrite the rules once again, but this time to create a fairer society and a more productive economy. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. One thing that was really interesting to me about the Rewriting the Rules framework is that in the last 
I'd say since the Clintonism, and of course you were part of that administration, which I'd love to chat about. But since Clintonism, there has been, I think, a focus in the Democratic Party on post-tax solutions. So solutions where maybe the economy is not fair in its distribution of gains, but if we tie the tax system to tax the rich and put the proceeds into a healthcare system, then the economy becomes more fair in the distribution of gains. And I, I think it's fair to say that the Clinton and post-Clinton consensus was that the best thing for liberalism to do was to allow a lot of freedom for the market to operate, quote unquote, as it will, to create a lot of efficiency and a lot of growth, and then to use the tax system and social policy and transfer spending to move that money around. And something that's fascinating to me about this book is that you are really arguing for pre-tax and even non-tax solutions, solutions that are about how the underlying market works and so how it distributes those gains before it ever interacts with the tax code. But I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that because you were in the Clinton administration when this was sort of the democratic consensus. Do you have reflections on what that was like? Did that change your thinking on this? How did that influence you? Well, your description, I, I think, is is spot on. There was the view at the time that it actually goes back to Reagan that if you lower taxes and liberalize, took away constraints, the former would provide incentives, the latter would free up the economy, the two together would provide for economic growth. And yes, there might be more inequality, but the size of the pie would be so much larger that everybody would be better off. We saw during the 12 years of the Reagan-Bush administration that that wasn't working very well. The economy wasn't actually performing very well. And the benefits of growth occurred went to the, went to the top. And so the challenge for us at the time that we began the Clinton administration was to derive a, an alternative philosophy. It was a special moment of time as well because the – Iron Curtain had just fallen. Market economy seemed to have triumphed over communism. A lot of people said it showed the virtues of the market economy. My own interpretation was that it showed the weaknesses of the communist system. But at that moment of history, there was a, an attempt to redefine the balance between the government and the market. We had seen that the excesses of the Reagan-Bush administration hadn't worked. We have seen the excesses of communism hadn't worked, and we thought that there was sometimes called a third way, a balance between the two that would produce more growth and more equitably shared growth. But the big debate was within the Clinton administration where that balance lie. And there, you know, quite frankly, there was a, there was a lot of disagreement. There were some people, like the Secretary of Treasury, who argued for more financial market liberalization. I argued against. I was very skeptical about the repeal of the Glass-Steagall, and I can say I was glad. While I was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, it didn't happen. I was worried about what the consequences of derivatives were. And I was disappointed when later on they passed a bill that ensured that 
derivatives would not be regulated, which led in in time to the excesses uh, of the 2000s, which eventually led to the global financial crisis, uh, where AIG had to be bailed out, $150 billion U.S. bailout, and it was all based on derivatives. So I was worried about that. I was worried, too, about whether lowering capital gains taxes, which was a major source of income, capital gains a major source of income for those at the very top, would spur the economy, and I was worried that it would lead to much more inequality. So, quite frankly, during the Clinton administration, we had a debate about a lot of these issues. Our hands were partly constrained by what we could get through Congress because, as today, there was a Republican Congress after the first two years. So we had these really active debates. But today, we should have learned the lessons of the last quarter century. And what we've seen is that the whole agenda of lowering taxes, including lowering capital gains taxes and the agenda of liberalization has not led to more growth, but has led to enormous increases of inequality. Inequality both in before tax income and after tax and transfer income. And that, of course, led to my wanting to focus on before tax and transfer income. Something was going on in the American economy. And when you started seeing data where productivity of American workers continue to go up, but somehow none of that increase in productivity was going to workers, it was very clear that something was going on that was a big change in the structure of the American economy that we had to address. And so at about that time, and and still to some degree even now, there is an argument that the reason you're seeing the gains of productivity increases and, and just economic growth generally, the reason you are seeing them shared so much more narrowly is two things. One is that the global economy, the sort of information economy, all of these technological and geographical disruptions we've suffered has made the returns to being one of the best at something much, much, much higher. Returns to certain sectors much, much, much higher. It's very easy for the financial sector. Goldman Sachs can do work in China, but your local supermarket can't. And then secondarily, that you just have a lot of workers who their skills are not as valuable in a globalized era. And so American output hasn't suffered that much, but the distribution of it has. And implicit in this is whether or not you like it, there's a sort of fairness to it. People are are getting what they deserve and it just turns out that in this economy at this moment, what they deserve is less. And maybe we need to give them more to make the economy stable or because we're compassionate, but that this is somehow a natural process that is happening and, and needs to be acknowledged as such. Yeah. And one of the main points of rewriting the rules is to explain why that particular theory is wrong. And I guess there are a couple of examples that illustrate how wrong it is. One of the striking things that's happened over the last quarter century is the increasing CEO pay from 30 to 1 to 301 relative to that of other workers in the corporation. 
CEOs and other top executives. There's been no increase in the relative productivity of CEOs, no reason why American CEO pay has gone up this way and CEO pay in Japan has not, CEO pay in Europe has not gone up that way. The fact that inequality has grown so much more in the United States than in almost all other countries suggests that it is not just economic forces. The same economic forces are going on in all the advanced countries. And yet, what is going on in America in terms of inequality is distinctive. And, you know, America likes to pride itself in being better, bigger than anybody else. And we are bigger in inequality, but standards of living, productivity growth is not better. So there's no correspondence that you can see between that tenfold increase in CEO pay relative to, to ordinary workers and just desserts, as, as, as you put it. There's another example that I think was more telling on this, and even than this example, is what happened after the 2008 crisis. The bankers who had brought their firm and the global economy to the brink of ruin walked off with bonuses in the millions of dollars. In any theory of just desserts, they would have not only lost their pay for that year, but there would be a clawback of all the bonuses they got on all the years where they were getting bonuses based on fraud, excessive risk-taking, market manipulation, insider trading, all these other things they were engaged in. But there wasn't. There wasn't. In fact, some of the Banks were so embarrassed about calling it performance pay that they changed the name to retention pay. But why would you want to retain somebody who had brought your firm to the brink of room? So as I look at it, it's not just desserts. We call that technically in economics the marginal productivity theory that each person gets a pay reflecting his productivity. There is an element, some element of what you say the demand for certain unskilled workers has gone down and that those without skills has, have been disadvantaged. But what is striking is if you look at the average pay, including the skilled and the unskilled, worker share is going down dramatically. If you exclude the top 1% uh, who are really the CEOs and the, the bankers who are not really workers in the, in the usual sense. So... What's gone on can't be justified in terms of uh, this theory of, of, of just desserts. So let me ask about the other side of that then. One of the things that you say a lot in rewriting the rules is that this is a very big and complex system. And in the book, you use that as an argument for why we need a holistic solution, a solution that touches our retirement system, that touches financial regulation, that touches a tax code, that touches worker trading, that touches infrastructure, that's all in all different parts of it. Because as you as you argue, we are seeing the outcome of a very big and complex machine. And one of the, the arguments you'll hear people make about rule-based interventions into the, the economy is for that exact reason, you shouldn't do it. That you know, we pretty much know what will happen if we tax people and move that money around. But as you begin to get into the guts of the economy, as you begin to work in this complex system and try to cross this wire here and you know grease this part there and take out this cog, things happen that that no one is expecting because the system is just at this point a, a tremendously complex enterprise. You mentioned Glass Steagall, and and one thing that I 
I'm not a particular fan of Glass Steagall repeal either, though, though I'm skeptical it led to the financial crisis. But one thing about that is that today, I think most people think we shouldn't have done that. And yet at the time, if I remember correctly, the vote in the Senate was 99-0. So even a lot of liberals were, were for Glass-Steagall reform. So what level of humility do we need to take into this? When should we be able to say, yeah, an intervention, we're pretty confident it will work versus this system, we should have a fair amount of status quo bias about it so long as it isn't crashing? First, I agree with you 100%. We need a lot of humility. And the implication of humility, though, is not status quo bias. The implication of humility is caution and openness to learning, learning about our failures, learning about our successes. Where I would depart from the narrative that you just described was that, in fact, we are always rewriting the rules. Markets don't exist in a vacuum, so we have to be writing and rewriting the rules as the world changes. We've been rewriting trade rules all the time because the world of globalization has changed. Let me give you just one other example of how we've rewritten the rules since the Reagan era, but it was rewritten not with the interest of the overall economy in mind, but with special interest the financial sector in mind. It's the bankruptcy law, which has gotten a lot of attention recently with Donald Trump and his ability to walk away from what he owed. Well, there are two interesting things about U.S. bankruptcy law that differs from almost that of any other country. Most countries, the first claimant on a firm when it goes bankrupt, which means that it owes more money than it can pay back. The first claimant is workers because workers can't get their time back. They're, they're, they're dependent on their you know, weekly wage. And so most humane bankruptcy laws put them at the center, number one priority. The United States changed that and we put the number one priority. The first payment went to the derivatives. Those financial risky products that I mentioned before play such a big role in the global financial crisis and the bailout of AIG. But there's another distinctive aspect of American bankruptcy law, and that's who cannot avail themselves of bankruptcy. And that is students who borrow money to just get ahead and to get on with their life because they know that without a college education, it's very hard in this economy to make it. We have a very expensive education system. We don't contribute in the way that European countries do. We don't have the state support for tuition. So tuition is very high. Student debt has run now to something like $1.2 trillion. It's bigger than credit card debt. And yet, one of the distinctive features of, of American bankruptcy law is that students cannot discharge their debt even in bankruptcy, even if they get almost no matter what happens. You know, they can get sick. Parents, uh, there have been just tragic stories of parents that co-sign a student loan. The child comes down with the disease, dies. The parent can't discharge that loan even in bankruptcy. So, that's an example where in 2006, under President Bush, we rewrote the rules of bankruptcy in ways that disadvantaged students, made it harder to restructure debt. Some people think that one of the consequences of that was more 
bad lending because the lenders could feel assured that they could make a bad loan. And because it was so difficult to go through bankruptcy, they could get repaid. So they didn't have to pay the kind of due diligence that they did before. And that this contributed, again, to the bad lending practices that led up to the 2008 crisis. So I'm just giving this as one example of many of the continual process that we've been engaged in in rewriting the rules. But unfortunately, we've been rewriting the rules for some special interest and not designed to ask, how do we make a more productive economy and how do we make a fairer society? Do you think there are places in the economy where the problem for the working class is that there are too many rules, that the correct position is to sharply deregulate? I think the most important problem facing working people are twofold. One, we've allowed the minimum wage to erode to the point where the real wage adjusted for inflation is roughly at the level it was 60 years ago. I mean, can you imagine a society that claims to be a great economy at the bottom paying workers the same amount that they did more than a half century ago? So this is one area where I think workers need help. The second area where there's been a problem is that the rules that govern collective bargaining have been tilted to make it harder for unions to organize. And that means the voice of ordinary workers is not being heard as clearly as it otherwise would. And that, too, has had some very adverse effects. So in those areas, I think both of those are a writing of rules. So labor, I know, wants to create card check, which would be a new structure around how the elections can go. The minimum wage folks want to, to raise it up to 1010 or 1210 or 15. But are there places where you think that we have overregulated? I mean, I, I hear a lot of people talk these days about occupational licensing and zoning. Are there places in the economy where what's happened is that folks have managed to write the rules towards them and what we need isn't different rules, but just fewer? Well, I think we are always going to have rules. Uh, you can't in a modern society live without rules. Uh, let me give you one example. If you didn't have stoplights, I live in New York, and if we didn't have stoplights in New York, uh, we would have gridlock in our city. And what are stoplights? They're, they're basically a rule of who can go across the intersection at what time. So it's a simple set of rules, and we all understand that set of rules, and, and we have come to accept those rules. We have rules on speeding because if you speed, you put at risk other people. Economists refer to those as externalities. Absolutely right that there are many instances when we don't write the right rules. And there are some instances where we've written, you might say, too many rules in, uh, in certain areas. And we, we then need to think deeply about whether those rules function. When I was in the Clinton administration, we had a process of rethinking the rules and stripping away many, many of the rules. Uh, for instance, there were registration requirements for establishing branch banks, and that generated an enormous amount of paperwork. But it wasn't clear whether that particular registration rule served any socially useful function. That was an example that we, where we got rid of the rule. There was another example where the rules for food safety were formulated 
in an era before we had modern technology. And modern technology meant that we had better ways of assuring food safety. But let's be very clear. We need regulations to assure food safety. If you have any doubt about that, just go to China where people don't trust whether the milk is safe. And people are buying American milk, New Zealand milk, simply because they have confidence in the safety of that milk. So when technology changes, we have to change the rules. So my view is we have to constantly revisit this issue. And there are, I'm sure, many cases where when we rewrite the rules, we'll find out that there are ways of doing it with fewer, perhaps no rules. The particular example that you mentioned, zoning rules, land use is one example where people interact with each other a great deal. If you have a a noisy factory, if you've already bought a home, you don't want a noisy factory to move in next door to you. And uh, the value of your home will go down if that noisy factory uh, moves in next door to you. So that's part of the reason we have zoning laws. We have regulations on noise. But the kind of regulations, say zoning laws, that we need today as we move to a service sector economy are very different from those that we needed when we were a manufacturing economy. And some of the zoning laws are designed to enable the 1% to create ghettos of just people like themselves, five-acre zoning laws that are designed to create communities of wealth. And obviously, those are measures that we ought to look on with some skepticism. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, Who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? So let me ask you about another venue for rulemaking, which is international trade agreements. We have been in an election year where the position of the Republican candidate is that Trade, virtually every trade agreement we've done in modern history is a disaster, with the most salient of them being the Clinton administration's NAFTA trade agreement. But the Democratic candidate, as well as at least professing to be against many trade deals, has criticisms of NAFTA, says the Trans Pacific Partnership trade deal is not worth supporting. Do you think that the turn against trade and these specific trade deals is? merited? Does it make you uncomfortable? How, how should somebody who worries about the issues you worry about and worries about inequality and middle-class wages, how should they think about trade? I think they should begin by realizing that the world today is different from what it was 25 years ago. Our economy is different. Inequality is much larger. And the structure of the economy is different. TPP, as an example, Trans-Pacific Partnership, It's not really a trade deal. We have under our law a requirement that the government assess the effect of any trade agreement on GDP. And the International Trade Commission did that for TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And its assessment was basically that there was a negligible benefit to economic growth and that benefit 
Winoni crew over years. So I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like the effect on GDP after maybe 15, 20 years was 0.15% of GDP. You have to understand that so the optimistic view, more critical view, say it's much more closer to zero, zero point zero percent So you have to ask, now, trade is supposed to be so good for the economy, for growth. How could this agreement, the largest agreement ever, according to Obama, 40% of the world's economy, have no effect on the economy? And the answer is, this is basically not a trade agreement, but it's a corporate agreement. It was done behind closed doors, corporations at the table, civil society not at the table, and even government, even people from Congress not at the table. And it was an attempt, for instance, by big pharma to change the balance between pharmaceuticals and generics to effect of which would be to raise the price that all of us pay for our drugs. It was an attempt to rewrite the rules of, of the economy, as we've been talking about, to make it more difficult to regulate, regulate for health, for the environment, for safety, for even economic stability. So there is a very I say invidious uh, part of TPP that allows corporations and only corporations to sue if governments do anything, pass a regulation that has an adverse effect on their profits. And of course, a major responsibility of government is to pass regulations to protect their citizens and often as in the case of tobacco regulations, asbestos regulations, environmental regulations, that does have negative effects on profits. And American courts and our Congress have repeatedly asserted that when you pass a regulation, corporations who lose should not be compensated. In fact, before that, they were imposing harm. And the basic principle, say, in environmental regulation is the polluter pays. And these agreements reverse that principle of polluter pays and says, no, we have to pay the corporations not to pollute. That's a basic change in the legal structure that was done in this agreement that was done behind closed doors. And I've been opposed to it. And that's why Elizabeth Warren has been opposed to TPP. This is a bad agreement. Now, to go back to your question about NAFTA, could I actually before could, could let's stay on TPP for a minute because I think there's I, I get a lot of questions about it. I'm fascinated to hear your your thoughts on it. So I've dug into parts of the agreement that you're talking about and that Warren talks about, which is I think primarily here the investor state dispute settlement portions. And when I talk to the Obama administration about them, they say, "Look, we have fixed this. We have made it tight. You cannot sue for compensation because this changed your expected future profits." We've exempted a lot of regulations. A lot of the Obama folks are folks you served with in, in the Clinton administration, like Michael Froman. They think they're doing something good here. So the, the way you framed it, I think it'd be hard for someone to see what do they think they're doing? Like, what do you think is the well-meaning, even if it's wrong, case for trade agreements? Why does an administration full of people who think of themselves as economic progressives, why are they doing this trade agreement if it's as malign in its dimensions as you say? <laughs> yeah, let me say 
I've examined these provisions as well, and the language is not clear. In fact, what I've said over and over again is the only thing which is unambiguous is that it is ambiguous. We've sent it out to lawyers <laughs> to read, and they're consistently interpretation is closer to the is basically spot on with what I've said, and not consistent with what the administration said. You know, they have language to say, you know, we're not intending to stop regulations. But notwithstanding this sentence, and then goes ahead and say companies can sue effectively. So there's only one exception, and that exception almost is the one that the fact that they had to carve this out proves my point. They gave an exception for cigarettes. And you say, why did they carve out cigarettes? And that was because there was such public outrage of a suit under a similar provision where Philip Morris was suing Uruguay in these uh, private arbitration panels for compensation because Uruguay had passed a regulation not to stop cigarettes, but to say they had to disclose that they were bad for your health. (laughs) And you would say, yeah, (laughs) what else is new? But the consequence of that disclosure was people smoked less, Philip Morris lost profits, and they sued. And the cost of the suit was so large that Uruguay couldn't pay. Mayor Bloomberg had to pay for the legal costs. The judges alone got paid in the millions of dollars. And one of the three judges gets to be appointed by Philip Morris. You know, it's the strangest legal system that you could imagine. There was outrage over that. And to their credit, they exempted that partly because one of the senators told me if they didn't exempt it, and this was a very powerful senator, he was going to vote against it. And he made that a condition, and they responded. You ask the question, well, if they're so well-meaning, why are they pushing it? You know, I can't fully understand it. The interesting thing is that in Europe, the resistance has been enormous to signing an agreement with this kind of provision. People have been on the streets in the tens of thousands protesting. I've talked to people in all walks of life who who see this as threatening the regulations that are so important in protecting them. And I've talked to senior people that say, you know, we, we simply could not sign on to a provision that is bad as TPP. But they say we will improve it. But the very fact that they say that TPP is inadequate is sending a message. We're going to wind up with our European partners having a different, they would say, better legal framework from those in Asia. And why should that be? Why should we treat Asians as second-rate citizens relative to the way we treat Europeans? Now, there's one more dimension in the story that Obama and Froman consistently say, and they brought this out in the State of the Union, and Obama brought this out in the State of the Union address, where he said, who is going to write the rules in Asia, rules of trade in Asia for the 21st century? And of course, my response is, I don't want those rules being written by American corporations or Chinese corporations. I want them written by American people and people in democracies all over the world. And the rules that TPP represent are rules written by American corporations. You ask the question, 
is it even possible that we are going to be writing the rules in the Asia in the 21st century when China is the dominant trading power? The answer is it's a little bit of a, a naive view of how rules get made. Those are my responses to the Obama administration has put forward as their uh, major argument, and that has to do with international, you might say, international relations. Do you think there is a version of the TPP that that would have been useful and necessary and worth supporting? Or are we at a point now where trade is broadly free enough that all of this energy going into these international trade deals, is energy better spent elsewhere? The point that I made before that the net effect of the trade deal on economic growth, as estimated by the government itself which remember is optimistic, was close to zero, suggests that we've gotten the low-hanging fruit in earlier trade deals, which means we we may not want to go back on some of those provisions, but future trade deals are going to get uh, smaller and smaller benefits. It also means that we want to look very closely at the detailed provision. So I do think we want to go back and revisit the investment provision, which is called Chapter 11 in NAFTA, and in other of our trade and investment agreements. It does mean that we want to revisit the provisions for intellectual property in the WTO and and other of our trade agreements. And it, it reemphasizes the general point that I've made during this conversation. It's about rewriting the rules. Trade agreements are about writing the rules of international trade. And when you're writing the rules, they have very big effects on a cross-section of society. And therefore, they have to be done. This rewriting the rules has to be done in a more open, transparent, and democratic way. So over the years, you have had occasion – I know you've been in a number of the Economist roundtables with President Obama. I know you have worked in the Clinton administration and and worked with Hillary Clinton. How do you think they differ in their economic intuitions? That's a good question. Part of it is what you've learned over time. The world today, 2016, is different what it was in 2008. The fact that Hillary – has seen what has gone on over such a long period of time and has really been learning means that her starting point in 2016 is different from Obama's in 2008. When President Obama went into office in 2008, he went in a period in which you might say there was a fire going on. And I think he he made a critical mistake in the very beginning, and that was to take as some of his uh, economic advisors, uh, some of the people who, if they hadn't set the fire, certainly were the architects of the building that made it very exposed to a spark and had created the fragility in the whole framework. They were, I think, more focused on saving the banks and the bankers, not following the normal rules of capitalism and letting the shareholders and bondholders take the first hit. They didn't focus very much on ordinary householders. You know, millions of Americans lost their homes. We provided $700 billion in the bailout, and only a few billion went to homeowners. Most of it went to the banks. So 
I understand where the president was at that moment. He was focused on fighting the fire. He made a critical mistake in who he took on to advise him in fighting that fire. And we've had an amazingly slow recovery, but we are slogging it there and we're finally getting there. Hillary has seen all this. The agenda today is much different. We're now talking about inequality. It is now accepted that the banks behave very badly. We now know about not only their excessive race-taking, uh, but about their market manipulation, the LIBOR, Fornet, Forex uh, market manipulation. We didn't know about that in 2009. The world is at a different place. Progressive voices are so much louder today. You saw that in the primary election. So that I think that the country as a whole is in a different place, and that really gives her a, a much better position to start in 2017. Are there people she is listening to who you are particularly excited or would be particularly interested in seeing go into government in a high position? Well, I think there are many people, you might say, on the progressive side of the Democratic Party whose voices are being listened to, whose voices are being very heard. Some of them are already in government and, and will continue to have their voices heard. People like uh, Elizabeth Warren, a number of other senators on the progressive side, Bernie Sanders himself, uh, Sherrod Brown, Jeff Merkel. Merkel. There, so there, there are a number of people who all through that period w that we were talking about when the fire was burning, many of these people were saying we have to do something about the homeowners. Their voices, I think, are likely to be heard more loudly in the next four years. There are a lot of voices. Uh, for instance, the Roosevelt Institute has, has tried to organize in a collective way some of the ideas we've articulated in rewriting the rules. We've also talked about a lot of the issues of exclusion in our economy, how we've not been able to include many groups in our society and our economy in the way we should. One of the stark things about America is that we used to lead the world in participation of women in the labor force. And now uh, we're far from the leader. And, and part of the reason is we don't have laws like family leave and sick leave and things like that, that, that Hillary's been very forceful and urging. And there are people like Heather Bushy who have been very good at articulating the need for this kind of, of legislation. I'm going to try to get you to name names, though. Who would be on your short I, list? I just did. And Heather Boucher. <laughs> yes, Heather Boucher's in there. If, if you were giving them a short list of people to consider for Treasury and NEC, which are, I think, the uh, two sort of pivots of power in in policy and economic policy making who who are the types of people you'd want to put on a short list there are a couple issues one of them is understanding the financial sector being able to stand up to the financial sector two people who've have enormous knowledge and enormous strength are Gary Gensler and uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin. Sarah Bloom Raskin is the Deputy Secretary of Treasury now. Gary Gensler was the head of the CFTC, which is the agency of the government that regulates derivatives, uh, futures trading, did a fantastic job when he was the head, was one of the people that uncovered the market manipulation by the banks. So those are two people who are very experienced and 
uh, would be the kind of people that I'd like to see uh, someplace in the next administration. I'm going to move to some questions that a lot of folks who are in the Vox audience were very excited to hear that that I was interviewing you and and putting questions. I'm going to move to a couple of those here. What do you think about a universal basic income in America? I think the idea of a universal basic income is a good idea. There are two questions in the debate about the universal basic income, and, and I haven't yet made up my mind. One is, if you don't have a lot of resources, isn't it better to try to target the limited amount of resources that you have at those who really, really need it? You know, the people who are disabled, the people who are elderly without other sources of income, a variety of people who are seriously disadvantaged. The problem with the universal basic income is that you give a flat amount to a large number of people, and that means because you have so many people, you can't give as much as you would to help those who most need it. On the other side of the coin is the fact that too often those who most need it have difficulty navigating the bureaucracy. And sometimes we've not been as thoughtful of writing the rules. For instance, sometimes it will take several weeks before you get your first paycheck from unemployment. And people who are really poor find it really difficult to go those two, three weeks before you get that first check. So we've not been as sensitive to the hardship that large fractions of Americans, you know, that, that large fractions of Americans are living hand to mouth. And that's a reflection of, of the failure of, of our economy, that those at the bottom, as I said before, have the same wage that they did roughly 60 years ago. So that's the basic trade-off. A basic income would avoid that kind of bureaucracy. The other one is, uh, should we be channeling the money to those who most need it? Now, you might say there are a couple countries in the world that are rich enough to give an adequate basic income to everybody. And Switzerland and the United States, Norway are among those few countries. Surely we can afford it if we chose. But of course, that's ignoring the reality of American politics today. Another reader sent in an email and argued that you'd been much more positive on particularly Venezuela and Greece than later economic outcomes suggested. That particularly with Greece, you're skeptical it need a bailout. You said that fears about its economy were rational. You're more positive on what Chavez was doing at a certain point. What did you learn from the path of those two countries? There are many examples of countries that start out with, you might say, reasonable economic policies, and then they change. And reasonable performance, I don't want to say great performance, reasonable performance at one moment of time doesn't guarantee what is going to happen, what they're going to do at the next moment of time, doesn't guarantee what's going to happen to the global economy at the next moment of time. So in the case of Venezuela... Chavez began with some, you might say, an agenda to include large fractions of the population that have been excluded. You know, here you had a South American country, one of the, probably the richest country, uh, huge oil reserves, 
and yet two-thirds of the economy were in poverty at the time he became president. And simple reason is all the benefits of that oil were being appropriated by a very small part of the population at the top. And he came to office with a promise to deliver better health and education and to get the economy to grow. He did succeed in improving health and education for uh, large fractions of the population. He had some ideas about getting the economy to grow, but it turned out that he was not a good administrator. And as time went on, he went to became more and more of a demagogue, more and more of a particular clique, uh, a different clique than the old one, but it's still a clique, were taking the benefits of the economic growth and they weren't they were doing well only because oil prices were high. And when oil prices plummeted, the country plummeted. And today it's at the verge of a humanitarian crisis. The case of Greece is, is somewhat different. The time I felt optimistic about Greece was when Papandreou became the prime minister, taking over from the new democracy government that was very aligned to the oligarchs who – and the new democracy was the government that had, you might say, lied about their statistics – and when Papadreo discovered the lie, he was very open and transparent about it. He put forward an economic agenda. I privately was very concerned uh, about whether they could succeed without restructuring their debt. And when a country faces uh, the possibility of debt restructuring and you're an advisor, you don't go public because that's a way of causing a, a financial crisis. But I can tell you, I did advise him to, to think seriously about debt restructuring, but that was not on the cards. Greece was not allowed to even go near the topic by Germany, the Troika, which are the group of uh, that were dictating the terms to Greece under the bailout, basically were focused on saving the German and French banks. To save the German and French banks, IMF even broke its own regulations and bailed out and did not demand the restructuring of the debt as their rules would have normally required. So it was very clear to anybody who looked at the numbers that, that there had to be a restructuring. But it was politics. It was raw politics. And the outcome of all of this was that after a couple of years, 2011 actually, Papandreou went back to the Troika and said, what you're doing is causing us to go into a recession, depression. You promised a growth strategy. You haven't given us anything, any growth. They came back and promised a growth strategy. They never delivered on what they promised. All they did was more of the austerity, and the country went deeper into depression. He said, look, if I'm going to be able to implement your programs, I need to get the support of the people. I have to, have, I have to consult them. The Troika said, no, we don't, won't allow that. In the turmoil that followed upon that, he was replaced by... The new democracy, the very party linked to the oligarchs that had led to the crisis in the first place by their overspending. You know, real irony of this. And then the Samaras government reversed 
all the things that Papandreou had done to try to curb the power of the oligarchs, not a surprise, and the Troika looked the other way. So to me, this was a real moment of disappointment in what happened in this period after the euro crisis broke out. So Paul Romer, who recently became the chief economist at the World Bank, which if, if I'm not wrong is a position you held previously as well, right? That's right. Right before he became chief economist at the World Bank, he leveled a pretty significant broadside against the practice of macroeconomics. And basically, this is very much paraphrasing him, but I think argued is at this point almost a form of witchcraft, that, that there's very little known, that the ability to do the modeling was very weak. I'm curious what you thought of that critique. I think what he's really aiming at was what is sometimes called the mainstream. Technically, these are called DSGE, Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium Models. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and they are the models that were used by central banks everywhere as the workhorse models forecasting. And let me be frank, they did a terrible job. And these models not only didn't predict the crisis, they essentially said the crisis couldn't occur because underlying these models are some very, very strong assumptions about market rationality. They ignore institutions like banks. Really ironic because central banks are using models where there are no banks. And if there were no banks, central banks wouldn't exist. So, so it's worse than witchcraft. It's sort of cognitive dissonance to the high order. But there is a separate strand of research, actually multiple strands of research that have gone on in the last 15 years that have actually done a much better job. There were some people who did see, foresee, saw the crisis. Economists are not very good about precise timing, but they saw, they were paying attention to excessive growth of credit. There are theories about explaining credit growth in standard model. Credit doesn't even exist. There's something called money, but that's not the same as credit. I wrote a book in 2003 called Towards a New Paradigm, Monetary Economics, where I emphasized the role of credit, the dangers of credit expansion, the risks associated with interlinkages between the financial institutions where breakdown of one could lead to the breakdown of others, exactly the kinds of fears that showed up in 2008, but which the standard models had paid absolutely no attention to. So in that sense, Romer's broadside is correct, but it underestimates numerous strands of work that have gone on to try to rectify, even before the 2008 a crisis to rectify some of these problems. And since 2008, there's been a lot of work, a lot more work that has, uh, I think, made progress. Unfortunately, there are some schools, Chicago, much of the work going on in a number of other academic centers reflects the pre-2008 thinking and has not adapted itself well to what we should have learned from the 2008 crisis itself. Who's an economist who you disagree with fairly sharply, but whose work you really respect and learn from? Uh, <laughs> that's a hard question because academic economists 
disagree with each other all the time and are learning from each other all the time. We even learn from, I just described the DSGE models. Now, that, those models, for the most part, I don't have an enormous respect, but I learn a lot from them because I, by studying where they went wrong, I learn a lot. There are economists like Bob Lucas who argue, for instance, that the problem of depressions had been solved. That was in something like the early 2000s. Of course, that was right before we we had the, the Great Recession. Uh, he suggested that inequality, to talk about it, was one of the most invidious subjects. I think it's very important. But when he makes those statements... It makes you think. He's extraordinarily bright. He, he won the Nobel Prize. And as he set, makes those statements, it makes you think, what is going on in his mind? What is his models? Where are his models, the way he thinks, different from the way I think? And that process itself is something that helps you do your own research better. And finally, what are three books that you have read and that have influenced you and you would recommend to the audience? Well, there are three books that have influenced me. They're hard slogging, so I'm not sure I'd recommend them to <laughs> anybody else. But they certainly had a lot of influence. One is Keynes. Keynes, who explained how over long periods of time, the economy could be mired in periods of high unemployment or as we are today in, in low economic growth. A second one was Schumpeter. Uh, who's been given short shrift by the economics profession. Some of my own work beginning in the 1980s helped to revive interest in what he was interested in. Actually, in the late 70s, I began focusing on these issues. And that is uh, innovation, technical change, learning. And one of my most recent books is called Creating a Learning Society. It focuses on the key role of learning in improving our standards of living. And the third is uh, Karl Polanyi, The Great Transformation, which shows how to understand what goes on in economics, one has to set it within a historical context, a historical context which one sees uh, economics within uh, politics and society. And those are three books that I, I, I've, I, I've learned a great deal from, from all three of them. Dr. Joseph Stiglitz, thank you very much. Been a pleasure talking to you. That was Dr. Joseph Stiglitz. Thank you to him for taking the time. Thank you to all of you for taking the time. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com. You're all reading Vox.com, right? And Panoply Production. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>